be seated. And as you take your seats, please turn with me in your Bibles again to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, as we read earlier in the service. Typically, here at IPC, we go through a book, verse by verse, preaching as we go along. But as Terry's away and as I get to fill in for him, each of the ministers have a, a series they're going through themselves. And I'm seeking to go through the, the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. So we've gone through Ephesus and Smyrna, and now we turn to Pergamum. You could say that in these last days of Western civilization, perhaps America, perhaps even Savannah in particular, these last days could be seen as a graveyard of churches. The landscape is strewn with beautiful church buildings. Where revival had come, perhaps reformation had burned, but today they stand as coffee shops, restaurants, boutique hotels. Perhaps they still function as some sort of soup kitchen or political resource center. But no longer are they taken up with the worship, discipleship, evangelism of the gospel ministry. And I don't mean to be too overdramatic. By some estimates, I, I've heard that church attendance today is as good as it was even at our nation's founding. But nonetheless, the scene is true by and large. It is this fear of being another church that dies, that empties, that stands as a sepulcher, a dead monument rather than a, a living bulwark that Jesus is warning about in these churches, in the letter, his letters to these churches in Asia Minor. To Ephesus in Revelation 2.5, Jesus threatens to come and to remove their light from them, that is, their heat and their light, their vitality, to, to, to put them out from being a church. Of course, this is a challenging message to our, to our own church and its beautiful building and its rich history. Centuries of faithfulness, however, guarantee no future. Many of the buildings throughout New England and Old England and Scotland and Germany are perhaps nothing but tourist attractions today. May it never be of us. May we hear what the Spirit says to the churches, what Jesus has to say to us this morning. He who, has, he who has ears, let him hear. Jesus, we might summarize his message to Pergamum, being in his commendation, his encouragement. Hold fast, don't deny, repent, conquer. This is basically the message to each of the churches he gives in these letters. But specifically to Pergamum, as he encourages them and treats them to conquer, to carry on, there's three things he acknowledges about them, and this will, this will be our outline this morning. First, they are a hard place. They're in a hard place in verse 13. They are a confused people in verses 14 to 15. Confused people. And they serve a fierce potentate in verses 16 through 17. A hard place, a confused people, and a fierce potentate. Things Jesus acknowledges and shows them as he calls them. To endure. We first see his acknowledgement of their hard place in verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, or I know where you live. And of course, that could sound rather 
rather uh, imposing, perhaps, if Jesus be our adversary, but if He be our friend and our Lord, if we be His church, these ought to be comforting words. He knows where we are, where we stand. I know where you live. And this is, He is here in verse 13, commending them. I know where you live. You hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, He says. The imagery of holding fast is like that of, of holding on for your dear life. One of my favorite games to play with my children around the pool is to pick them up and to throw them into the water. And recently, when we were at an especially cold pool, my children illustrated well what's happening here. They dug their fingernails into my skin. They grabbed my hair so that I could not throw them off. They held fast, as it were, for dear life. There's something of that white knuckle holding on that Pergamum does in our passage, that the Lord commends them. But not only have they held fast, it says in verse 13, they have not denied. When the pagan or the imperial Gestapo, as it were, knocked on their door, they did not deny who was inside the house. When the ISIS jihadists came asking who was in this home, they did not deny his name. Peter denied three times. Pergamum has not denied. There's much to commend here. Now, reading this originally, and if you read the other letters around it, this is a pretty low bar for commendation. Jesus uh, is, is rather pleased with Jem just holding on for survival. And, and I thought, well, that's, that's rather a low bar in, in the face of a, a great commission to follow, a whole New Testament of one another's to keep, a call to be holy for I am holy. Survival is enough here. And, and it is because, as Jesus realizes, he tells them he knows where they live, Two things he points out by what he means. He calls it, number one, Satan's throne, or at the end of the verse, where Satan dwells. And number two, he remembers the martyr Antipas. Now, let's take the first one. Why does he call it Satan's throne, or where he lives? And there is no obvious answer in the text. Jesus doesn't explain what he means. He, he assumes Pergamum knows exactly what it means that, and that we can figure it out. Very much like Smyrna, Pergamum is a city that sits on a hill that arises out of the plain. Uh, it looks like a holy place. Uh, you see it from miles around as you come towards it. But not only that, but as you approach the city, the main gate up onto the, the high mount of the city with the colonnades around it looks something like, at least as the artistic renderings of the ruins put it, looks something like a giant throne. But also Pergamum is known to be another center of both imperial uh, cult worship and paganism. Sir William Ramsey, the famed archaeologist, points out that while Ephesus, Ephesus, you know, the, the first city in our letters, was, was becoming slowly but surely the largest economic and religious center of the region, and Smyrna was um, competing to keep up, Pergamum is the old school one. It's the original. It's the first to have an imperial cult to uh, a Caesar, to Augustus. But not only that, basically every square inch of the city, especially the raised up part of the city, is, is claimed by one cult or another. There's a large temple to Zeus, another temple to Athena, another temple to Aeschylus, another temple to Dionysus. So that it's a city with oppressive spiritual power. We might uh, I liken it to modern-day Kolkata. A church meeting there might look as ridiculous as a, as a small PCA church plant, perhaps with their, their, their flannel graphs and, and stacking chairs 
on the steps of the MGM Grand with the goddess Celine Dion and her billboard overlooking them. There's something out of place about these Christians in the heart of a darkness, both political imperial cult and paganism. Not only does it look like a giant throne, not only is every square inch claimed by one temple or another, but Pergamum is known as also a center of learning. They have a very famous library, so famous, in fact, that what what we call parchment, that is animal skins pulled very tight and used as a a form of early paper, in the Greek language, the, the word for parchment is Pergamum. So connected is this city of parchment, of learning, of of bookishness. And there is, of course, a a pride that would come along with their ancient library. So that Pergamum is a city identified with the political dominance, perhaps, of D.C. or the history of D.C., with the pagan spiritual darkness, perhaps, of a Vegas, and the high-minded pride, perhaps, of a Cambridge, Massachusetts. Jesus doesn't stutter when he says that they live, they dwell in the throne of Satan, where Satan dwells. If anybody knows the reality of where Satan lies, who sees with true spiritual eyes, it is the Lord Christ. And this people living behind enemy lines are to be commended for holding fast and not denying. But not only is this this hard place generally, specifically, or it seems even recently in the text in verse 13, Jesus mentions Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Now, we know nothing more about Antipas than what's said in these verses. And yet, we don't have to know a whole lot about this young man, this young Christian, and how he died, because we, have, we, can, we can fill in the details, as it were. Perhaps it was like Stephen before the Jews, on trumped-up charges, stoned to death. Perhaps it was like Paul before the Romans, after a long imprisonment. Perhaps it was like Polycarp of Smyrna, burned the stake and pierced through the heart. Perhaps like Ridley or Latimer. Perhaps like uh, the mob accident of Jim Elliott and Roger Udarian, Nate Saint, and McCauley before the Wadani tribesmen in Ecuador. Whatever it was, Antipas' martyrdom seems to not have deterred them. He, he commends them in the face of this recent martyrdom among them. Perhaps we can imagine. Uh, worst comes to worst in Savannah. And Antifa perhaps runs rampant in our city and catches wind of the things being said from our own pulpit, proclaiming the word of God as the true true word. They come to make things clear, their disapproval. And one Sunday morning, they show up on our grass and take one of our young men and beat him to death. How many would be deterred from the next Sunday? How many of us would wonder about how safe church might be, right? There's something of this here. Pergamum is a hard place. Of course, Savannah is no Calcutta or Pyongyang or Kabul or Vegas. But no doubt for many of us, being a part of the church, being a, an out Christian, will cost us more and more. The LGBTQIA cult requires absolute allegiance in our day. It only ever seems to grow in strength. Every ball game, every classroom, every boardroom may someday very much pledge some kind of allegiance to the pride flag, a pinch of some sort of incense, as it were, to the imperial cult. And interestingly in our text, it seems that this is the very issue of sexual ethics that these Christians that are being commended for living in a hard place are also confused about. They are living in a hard place and they are a confused people, our second point. We see this especially in verses 14 to 15. Look at verse 14. 
Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of, of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now both the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans are, are rather mysterious. We, don't, we aren't given details uh, very many details in the text. Well, let's take Balaam first. We, we know of Balaam from Numbers chapters 22 through 24. Perhaps you've heard the story in Sunday school. It's, it's Balaam's donkey that, that speaks back to him and Balaam beats. It is Balaam who's four times the words that are meant to come out of his mouth of cursing on Israel are transformed by blessing. Of course, the man behind Balaam being paid and told to put curses on Israel is the king of Moab, Balak. Balak, who's mentioned here. Balak is hoping for some good kind of hex or incantation or omen upon these people that are invading his own land. But the story of Balaam and Balak doesn't stop there. We're told in Numbers 31.6. It records that according to Balaam's advice, Balak eventually was able to curse Israel. And how did he curse them? By hexes and incantations? No. Balaam's advice to Balak was to send the Moabite women among the sons of Israel and to tempt them or seduce them to the idolatrous festival feasts of their pagan deities. This, of course, makes interesting background to the book of Ruth, Ruth being a Moabitess. But the point of the illusion here was that it was according to Balaam that Israelite men had been led astray into the cultic feasts and into sexual immorality. The Nicolaitans are also mentioned there in verse 15. It's, it's similarly ambiguous. Uh, they're mentioned in Revelation 2.6 as being hated in Ephesus and that being a good thing to hate the Nicolaitans. We're not sure of what they believe, but we can assume there's something uh, similar to what Balaam taught. Perhaps something like, well, you can be a Christian. You can celebrate the Bacchanal and get wasted drunk and sleep with the temple prostitutes. You can be a good Pergamum citizen, participating in all, in all the local religious flair, drunkenness, gluttony, carousing, sexual perversion, and you can still be a Christian. It seems, as John Stott proposes, that what Balaam was to the Old Testament church Israel Nicolaitans are to the New Testament church, especially in Pergamum. Perhaps they taught Gnostic heresies, that the body itself wasn't real, that all that mattered was the soul. Perhaps they said, what you do with your body doesn't touch your soul. It's, of course, what the Apostle Paul puts completely out of bounds in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. What you do with your body matters. Or if it wasn't a Gnostic heresy, perhaps it was an, an antinomian heresy or anti-law heresy. This is popular throughout Christian history. It goes something like this. Oh, oh, don't be such a legalist with all the rules in the Bible. Don't do this or don't do that. We've been freed from rules to relationship. If we do stuff out of love, we can't be wrong. We need to be all things to all men. If you end up sleeping with prostitutes out of love, it's okay. Grace, grace, grace. As soon as you try to start keeping the law, you become a legalist. Of course, this is exactly the kind of teaching that Paul opposes throughout his writings. No small part in Romans 6. The Bible, of course, is never antinomian, never anti-law, but rather it is always law in its appropriate context, making the appropriate distinction. 
When we talk about justification, the law only condemns. We are only justified by faith. We are justified by faith alone. Then when we talk about sanctification, our progress, after we've been justified, the law is, is no curse, but it is a blessing. It is the light uh, we walk in. It is, it is the way forward. It is the way to full and free life. It's the way of the blessed man of Psalm 1 who meditates on the law of God both day and night. Perhaps it was these classic confusions of Gnosticism or antinomianism that leads the people of Pergamum astray. But we should notice it's very similar issues even today we face in our own churches. The PCA, my own denomination, has been roiled in confusion over biblical sexual ethics in recent years. These words are ever relevant. Jesus making clear what he thinks about confusion in these areas. Jesus we see first, commends their faithfulness in a hard place, but second, points out their confusion, the confusion of the people. And thirdly, we can't miss as we read this text, the fierceness of the potentate, that is the the king that he is. Jesus has exposed the false teaching and the practice among the church, but what what is he going to do about the sexual immorality and idolatry? Well, look at verse 16. He says, therefore, Repent. We, we ought not read too fast. There's much in that phrase, a call to repentance. Stop going down to the temples where the prostitutes are out. Stop thinking you can dabble in a little bit of local flavor and not get burned. Don't even look at those statues. Don't watch those plays. Don't even turn your eyes to those movies. Don't use your, app, your laptop alone. Don't go on a website at all without another set of eyeballs over your shoulder, without some kind of accountability. Stop going that way. Get serious about holiness and go in the right direction. This is what the call to repentance from Jesus is. It's a call to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Knowing that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a call to get serious, to be careful. Little eyes, what you see. Little feet, where you go. Little hands, what you do. Little brain, what you think. The Father up above is looking down in love. He sees. But notice, he doesn't just see, he also acts. He calls them to repentance in verse 16a, but then also he, he, he makes clear, um, some, so we might call it negative motivation and positive motivation. Negative motivation first, a, a punishment threatened, and then a reward offered. What does he say, verse 16? If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So what is to be done with those who hold wayward views, confused sexual ethics in the church today? Something. Something before Jesus comes and makes war on them with a sword. Jesus makes clear but what needs to be done here. Serious church discipline, serious clarification, serious teaching. This is a, a fierce potentate, no doubt. Um, it leaps off the page. It was Reverend Gear last time that pointed out that the book of Revelation is perhaps the only book that depicts as a major theme throughout the wrathful lamb. A wrathful lamb of a Jesus who is not meek and mild, but of a risen Christ resplendent in glory, bearing the sword, treading out the winepress of the wrath of God in chapter 19. No sweet little baby, six pound, five ounce that we can pray to and, and not be afraid of in Christ, American Christianity. No effeminized, soft friend hoping that you will let him be a part of your life. No, he is the king. With all power and glory. 
Note that it is the, the risen Christ speaking here. Let's turn back a page. We need to hear it fully. We need to know who's speaking. Look at chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Paul narrating that, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the one who speaks. Christian Dumais is a professor at Calvin University who wrote a book in the last year entitled Jesus and John Wayne. The subtitle is How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. There's been much made of her book and, and others about how evangelicals like ourselves have, have read a kind of militant or, or heroic or, or masculine Jesus, a kind of a John Wayne kind of Jesus into our doctrine of Christ. How it's not really there, but they, they've isogeted this cultural ideal into the text. Now, I think part of the critique of her book of evangelicalism's advertising-obsessed commodification of whatever popular trinket or movie can be sold to a mass audience. I think there's something right in that critique. But Christ as the one who comes with the sword cannot be missed from your regular Bible reading. What was good about the characters that John Wayne played on the silver screen? That they gave themselves over to setting things right, to bringing down justice, is something of what we have here. Christ with sword coming from his mouth. It's mentioned twice. Notice in verse 12, the, the introduction. How, how do I want you, John, to, 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 or the angel, to, to bring this letter? To, whose voice is speaking? Verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And what does he threaten with in verse 16? The one with the two-edged sword. Now, now, why is this such an emphasis to, the, to Pergamum? Why is this? Um, this picture of the, the short Roman sword, perhaps, it looks something like a tongue, mentioned twice. I think it's because Pergamum sees itself as the original and official seat of Roman power on the whole land mass of Asia Minor. They see themselves as being given the sword of Rome. Isn't this the very imagery that Paul uses in Romans 13 for, for, the, for the authority of the state? They bear the sword. And what is the message Jesus has for these people in Pergamum? The Roman government might bear the sword, but there is another potentate who bears a sword, a greater sword, not with his hand, but by the word of his power from his mouth. It is he who holds the keys of death and Hades, who, who in this passage here, between 16 and 17, lays down this contrast. Jesus loves a contrast, a negative or a punishment threatened, and then a positive motivation of reward in verse 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
It's, a, it's quite the reward. It's not the reward perhaps I would have asked for. It's, of course, far better than any of us would have known to have asked for. Uh, they are rather mysterious rewards. The, the white stone with the hidden name and the hidden manna. We're going to start with the white stone with, uh, with a hidden name and then we'll work to the hidden manna. We'll go from what's less clear to what's more clear. This white stone with a new name is a great, perhaps, illustration of how apocalyptic literature works. The genre itself is impressionistic. It pulls together all kinds of symbols. It's not uh, realistic as a word. There's no clear, defined, explained meaning, but rather several strands that could be flowing through here to, to make clear what Jesus means. Now, the commentators lay out uh, many possible meanings. I'll, I'll briefly summarize six. Number one, it seems that perhaps victorious, conquering gladiators who are retiring receive not only the wooden sword of uh, movie legend, but perhaps also a white stone, proving their awarded retirement, which could be an appropriate meaning here for a conqueror. Number two, it seems that sometimes these victorious gladiators may have been given a, a white stone as a form of a, of a permanent ticket to the, to the festival feast that were going on around their gladiatorial games. So that uh, they were given a stone and they, they could enter uh, the back and all feast just outside their games. Number three, there's a tradition of, of counting votes with either a white stone or a black stone. You could be voted to, to be guilty or innocent by the number of stones, perhaps, or perhaps allowed into a club or not. Um, this is where we get the term being blackballed. Uh, one person puts in the black ball into the, into the cup and you are kept out of the club. Perhaps here we see Jesus offering the white stone that is needed for entry into his group. Number four, John Stott suggests there's a connection to other famous stones that belonged in the holy place with the great high priest that sat in the breastplate of the high priest, the umim and the thumim, the stones that were meant to, to, to determine in some ways the, the will of God that sat in the breastplate of the high priest who was able to go into the most exclusive club in the world, the very fellowship of God and the holy of holies. Number five, it seems that Receiving a new name on a stone is a sign of new birth and new identity. It was a part of the initiation of some of these cults, these pagan cults. Certainly that would be something to communicate here. Here's an official symbol of our adoption into Christ's family. Number six, there's some debate whether the name on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it is the divine name, as the Philadelphians receive in 312, as we'll come to, or it's a personal new and hidden name. It could very well be both, I suppose. A divine name that works, as it were, as a last name. Uh, something like an adoption certificate. But there's also an ancient tradition where amulets with the divine names, secret hidden divine names, give you access to the power of the divinity uh, whose name you possessed. So that when, when Moses in Exodus 3, some of the commentators surmise, when he asks the Lord, what is your name? He's asking for access to that power, that secret hidden holy name. Perhaps there's something of that here. All these strands may be flowing through this illusion, through this imagery and meaning here. Perhaps only one or two of them. But this white stone, the permanence, the new secret, the name... Shrouded in mystery, a revelation of who we are truly, a new name no one knows but ourselves. It's one of our great themes of our epics. What are Luke Skywalker and Ray and Harry Potter trying to do but to discover who they are 
and why they're there. Something of that revelation perhaps offered here. But also perhaps more clearly in the, is, the, is the hidden manna here in verse 17. Remember manna from Exodus chapter 16, the bread from heaven provided by God to his people in the wilderness. Um, manna, of course, means what is it? So it's, it's a hidden what is it? It's, a, it's another symbol sign shrouded in mystery. And yet we know what, what Moses famously is told to do with the manna, to take a jar of it and to put it inside the Ark of the Covenant. The, the hidden manna behind the veil, in the Holy of Holies, inside the box, the Ark that symbolized the very presence of God. When Jesus offers access to that hidden manna inside the Ark of God, the Ark of God in 1 Samuel 6, that Israelites are struck dead for opening, what is he offering He's offering a different kind of feast. He's offering bread they do not know about. He's offering a way to feast upon the one who is the bread. Who is the manna? John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread, right? He's offering communion with him, fellowship with God in the holy of holies, in the most essential, the most exclusive club in the history of the world, the very fellowship and communion with God. Is this not in some way what we experience when we come? Do you know Have you tasted the hidden manna, Dr. Ferguson says? Do you know what it is to come in, to dwell with God, and to know what it is to be clean, made new, adopted afresh, to feed in fullness upon the God who gives life, who himself carries the keys of heaven and hell? If you don't know this hidden manna, what it is to be clean and free and known and accepted and beloved and fellowship with God, the one whom our souls were meant for, you need to find out today, to turn to this Christ and to bend the knee. Jesus knows his people are in a hard place. He knows some of them are confused. But he also knows and reveals afresh the fierceness of the potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, He is our only comfort in life and in death. What does Jesus preach to his people but himself? Perhaps 1 John 4 4 summarizes it the best. Jesus is saying that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, may we never be a church whose light is put out. May we always burn with a zeal for the glory of God. May we always be those who proclaim the light of the world, Jesus Christ, who who beckons us to come and eat of the hidden manna, to receive a, a stone with a new name, a fullness of revelation of who we are in you. May we have new revelations of this, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For our closing hymn, please turn in your hymnals, number 521. My hope is built on nothing less. In Jesus' blood and righteousness, number 521.